begins, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. If you recall, we observed the following, uh, I guess, facts, for lack of a better word, is that it's really through the gospel that we can be set free from this guilt, this wretched uh, uh, position that, that we are in. The law could not take away sin. However, as Christians, what about the law should exist within us? And think about what we studied in verse 4. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled within us. And we talked about the fact that when you really peel the onion back and look at the core of what the law is all about, what is it? It's the first principle. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. That is who we are as Christians. Under the old covenant, you were born into it. But under the new covenant, it's a choice. It's a choice to serve God, to choose to love him. It's a choice. And so Paul then moves into this discussion of this conflict between the flesh and and the spirit. And he, he talked about the idea that the mind that is focused on the flesh is hostile to God. However, the mind that is focused on the spirit, on doing God's will, of being submissive to God's will, that person uh, will uh, have life, peace, will be reconciled to God. We also talked about the conditional nature of walking in the Spirit. Again, once we're baptized, you know, not all is hunky-dory. It's a continual life of service, of choosing to submit yourself to God. And so we considered that, the conditional nature of walking in the Spirit. And then we also looked at the benefits of walking in the Spirit. And so I want to just briefly uh, refresh our minds because it really leads into this discussion of suffering. If you think about what we, what we looked at last week, and that is the benefits of, of seeking the Spirit, of living by the Spirit, of submitting yourself to God's will. Notice the benefits. One, as he looks at, or as he discusses in verse 11 and in verse 14, or excuse me, 13, Eternal life is a benefit. And isn't that a great motivator for us as Christians to keep looking toward the end goal? Second, he references this concept of being sons of God, of adopt, uh, being adopted by God as sons. And he, he compares this idea of slavery versus sons. You know, we're not an, a slave of God. Understand what I mean by that. We're slaves of righteousness. But our relationship to God is not one of slavery. It's a, not a slave master. Because what I really want to emphasize is what he talks about the fact in verse 15 is that we have received a spirit of adoption. We are children of God, not slaves of God. And please understand what I'm saying when I talk about that. We are children of God. And if we're children of God at, through adoption, what did we notice last week? The rights of those children that are adopted. 
that we've got the same legal rights, if you will, the inheritance of those children who are of natural born. And so, what a blessing. And so we cry out, Abba, Father. And that really, if you think about it, and this was sort of toward the end of last week, really has two components to that idea of Abba, Father. It's not just the close relationship that exists between the Father and Christ or his children, Father and us, but there's also an idea of subjection to the Father's will. And we talked about that as it relates to the three examples when Abba Father is used in the New Covenant. And we were able to draw that conclusion. And so, the fourth thing is, the fourth benefit is really talking about in verse 17. So let's go to 17 because that's going to lead us into verse 18 where we begin, where we pick up. Notice, and if children, that's speaking of us, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And I'm just going to pause there for a minute. When you think about the fact that we are fellow heirs with Christ, what does that mean to you? I mean, that should just be overwhelming in the benefits and the position that we, who were once enemies and helpless before God, we are now fellow heirs with Christ. Isn't that just descriptive of the magnitude of God's grace, of God's love, God's mercy, his justification? All the things that we've talked about throughout the quarter just comes to me, alive here in this phrase, we are fellow heirs with Christ. And so notice the condition. If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there's this conditional perspective of being fellow heirs that we've got to be willing to suffer because what did Christ do? He suffered. We'll come back to that concept in just a minute. But think about the fact that Christ suffered and was glorified. God exalted him. Isn't that Acts 2? In order that we may also be glorified. So what's a prerequisite to glorification? Suffering. Right? Just like Christ suffered and was glorified, then we must suffer with him in order that we might be glorified. And so this idea of suffering, um, I think, is very important that we understand because in our culture up to this point, and I hope you understand maybe what I'm thinking in the 10,000-foot view. But with our religious freedoms that have existed, have we suffered as maybe the Christians in the first century suffered? Yeah, we may have been picked on, made fun of at school or in college or at the workplace, But have we suffered 
with him? Have we been persecuted like him? Because what does Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3? All who live godly can expect what? To suffer persecution. And so, you know, I'm not professing to be a prophet by any means, but when you look at the dynamics of of things going on in our society, I think we need to prepare ourselves for this concept of suffering and the lessons and the ideas that are going to be laid out here at the end part of Romans 8 to me are very timely. Roger. Uh, Most of us don't suffer that much, but if you really, uh, you suffer and you don't know it. A lot of things happen to Christians, such as getting a job promotion, this, that, and the other. Uh, Now, those Christians in that Church of Christ in Antioch, where that man walked in there and shot them, they suffered like Christ did because some of them lost their lives and some of them were injured. Yes, they did. You can suffer that way. Yeah, and and we'll talk about that. So that's a good segue to things that we're going to be talking about later today, that there are various forms of suffering, various forms of persecution. But when you think of our culture and our society as a whole up to this point, it's really been easy. When you think about the first century Christian and what they endured... When you don't go to the gym or when you don't get up and move around, what happens to the, your muscles? Atrophy. Yes, you just sort of lose the strength. Okay? Just not as in shape as you may have once been when you were young. Okay? And so that's, you know, I guess where I'm going is, are we a little soft on suffering? as a Christian, in our culture. So things may get tough in our lifetime, maybe not, maybe in our children's lifetime, what have you. But I think today is going to be important as we look into the, in our culture and see what uh, lies before us. So um, a couple of things I want to notice, and that is... Uh, When you think about this week, and just sum it up into two parts, two main points for today's lesson. One, Paul is telling these Christians in Rome that there is an assurance that we will receive this glory. That we will be glorified as Christ is glorified. So he talks about that. He assures these Christians of receiving that future glory. And then the second main point is all about the assurance of victory. And I cannot help but think about Revelation. Because when you think about the big picture of Revelation, what is Revelation all about? Is it not about victory? Is it not God disclosing to the Christian in the first century and to us today in 2022? that the Christian is victorious, don't give up. And so let's look then today at 
the, these ideas of receiving future glory and of being victorious. So, weekly briefing. <clears throat> you don't get anything from today's lesson. It's this. It's that through Christ, the Christian can overwhelmingly conquer the weapons of Satan. We can be victorious and not to give up. <coughs> and so, let's go in. Let's consider thinking about this idea of suffering, of being glorified. And then he goes in and says, why? Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Before I, before I really dissect this and go in, I, I want to really think about how did Christ suffer. Go to First Peter, the second chapter. And some of you may already know where I'm going. But notice 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So who can we look to as our example to follow in times of suffering. Christ. And notice his example. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But notice what he does. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So, as we, the, to me, the, the, the core foundation is, in times of suffering, what do we need to realize? Who do we need to put our trust in? God. We entrust ourselves to God, realizing that who is going to take care of everything? God. Okay, we Americans are control freaks. Are we not? I am control freak number one. Ask my wife. Okay. But there are certain things we cannot control. As much as we Americans think we're in control, we are not. So who do we need to entrust ourselves to at all times, but especially in times of suffering, of persecution. When we're in prison, as Paul and Silas were, or we're being stoned like Stephen was, or we're being stoned like Paul was, or we're being beaten like the apostles were, what should our attitude be? Prayerful, entrusting ourselves to God. Think about what Paul and Silas were doing in prison. Were they saying, woe is me, maybe I shouldn't have done what I did. 
No, they were entrusting themselves to God. They were singing praises to God. They were, consider- they were rejoicing, considering themselves worthy to suffer shame for God. Jason. Just think back to some of your questions earlier. You know, are we, are we soft? Yeah, we, mm. we are soft. Um, and so what do we do about that? And I think about your, your question right now as far as how, what is the pattern that we see it's difficult for us to go out and seek out trials in, in the sense the first century Christians endured. Mm-hmm. But we do face challenges every day. Yeah. And so in the little trials, how do we deal with them? Yeah. You know, when we're facing difficulties at work or difficulties at home or difficulties with health, minor things in relation to what the first century Christians do, mm-hmm. do we have that same kind of trust? Are we building those muscles mm-hmm. um, in different ways. Are we yeah. building our strength and our faith in different ways? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good, good point. And so I, I couldn't help but think when you're, when you're looking at verse 18 and realizing, because this really goes back to the question, question one in today's lesson is of what was Paul confident concerning current suffering? It, it pales in comparison to what lies ahead. And I couldn't help but think about Second Corinthians, the fourth chapter and fifth chapter, if I can get there. Because in Second Corinthians 4, notice he is, uh, Paul is describing what he and his fellow apostles are going through. Notice in verse 18, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in in our mortal flesh. Okay? But, keep, but, but let's keep on going here. But having received the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So what was the persecution and the suffering of the apostles? What was it going toward? What was it generating? If I, I, I'm at a loss for exactly the word I'm looking for. What was it producing? It was producing faith. It was producing life in others because they were choosing the gospel. And so notice, though, in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And this is, to me, a parallel verse to eighteen, uh, verse 18 in Romans 8. <coughs> For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We have a whole world out there who can only see what? What is right before them. What do we need to be doing? 
We need to be looking well beyond what is seen. We need to be looking at what cannot be seen. And if we can keep our focus on that, then the suffering and the persecution that we endure, we're not focused on the suffering. What are we focused on? The end game, the end result. We're focused on God. Okay, so um, let's go ahead. And so let me get back to Romans 8. So... Let's go and to question two. No, let me let me let me go back. Let me uh, before I move on. Um, I'll just go there. I knew I was off a little bit. So, in our suffering, our future glory is far greater, and. Think about the different types of suffering that we endure. I think, Roger, you sort of mentioned this earlier. It might be financial suffering because we didn't get the promotion or we were overlooked for that promotion or that job because maybe we weren't willing to do something that we felt we couldn't as a Christian. Maybe it is the imprisonment, the beatings, that like what the first century Christians endured. Um, those different types of sufferings, we need to be ready and expect that to happen. A couple of passages I, I, I thought of in, in that respect is go to go to Revelation. First, I'm going to go to Revelation seven. No, six, sorry, Revelation six. And notice that in Revelation six, verses nine through 11, the fifth seal is broken and John sees whom under the altar. Souls of the righteous one who have been killed. And notice verse 11. I thought verse 11 was interesting. And there was given to each of them a white robe because they've been victorious. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Because again, they're crying out, how long, how long, O Lord, is this going to continue? Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? That's, that's the question. And, he's, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. So what does that indicate? There there are more coming, right? So there should be an expectation for us of immense suffering. But also, going back to, I think, what Roger pointed out, and I wanted to connect that dot, is in Revelation 13, verse 17, notice it says, and this is those who did not have the mark of, on their right hand. But notice he says in verse 17, and he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell 
about that is doing business, except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the net number of his name. So as I see it, this is a, a description then of people suffering financially, economically, because of their faith in Christ. And so those are just different ideas and thoughts of how we could suffer. But, but regardless, God assures us that there is glory and exaltation for us through these sufferings. At the end of the suffering, think about Revelation 22. Who's going to be reigning with Christ forever? Who's going to be exalted with Christ Is it not us, the believer? And so now in verses 19 through 25, he goes on to give a description of how he terms creation, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And so really when you think about this whole section, 19 through 25, we need to to frame it within the scope and the context of what he's been talking about, suffering, of waiting for that period of that time of glorification and when is that going to happen when will the saints be exalted and glorified Jesus's return right and so notice for the anxious longings of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not of its own but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I'm going to stop right there. I think if you understand the context that is all about suffering, that creation isn't everything, but creation is descriptive as a term used for mankind because suffering is indicative of just certain people or all people. All people suffer in some form or fashion. And we groan and we wait for that end of suffering. But because we're human, we're men, we're going to suffer while we're here on earth. And so, but notice in verse 20. It says, the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself, so let's think about this, that mankind itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of children of God. So what is God's desire for mankind? That all men will be saved. Yes, there is suffering. And there is God's hope that this suffering, that was basically, when you look at the core, why are we suffering? Because man chose to sin, we were thrust out of the Garden of Eden. And so we suffer, but it's God's hope that through this suffering, these trials, these temptations, that man will turn to him, turn to God. And be released from the slavery of corruption to be free of the, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And I, I, 
Okay, so let's think about, let's go all the way back to the Old Testament. What does Solomon say to, uh, in Ecclesiastes? What about life? All is. And so what does Solomon do? He, uses, he goes through what? Wisdom, pleasure, money, all these things at his disposal. But at the end of the day, what does he conclude in chapter 12? Do we need to go there? Go to uh, Ecclesiastes 12. When all is said and done, forget all the pleasure, the wisdom, all the material possessions that one could have. Solomon realizes that at the end of the day, verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so when we think about this idea in, in Romans 8, the... Um, the fact that creation was subjected to futility, that, that word basically means frailty. Um, and, and, and similar, uh, <coughs> want of vigor. And so, when we think about it, what's before us isn't important. But our mind should be focused on the glory that lies ahead of us. And so that's really the point of uh, what Paul is saying to these, to these Christians in Rome. Life is f- fragile, it's frailty, it's vanity, but focus on God. Go, to, go back to 2 Corinthians. Because to me this is a parallel passage. Verse 1, chapter 5. <coughs> For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Isn't that really what, in essence, Paul is telling to these Romans? We're groaning while we're suffering in this, this earth. We're longing to go and be released into this glory, this other uh, dwelling that that we'll receive. Notice verse 3, Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has... Verse 5, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Isn't that really what? Paul is telling these Romans here in Romans 8. And so 
um, in verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of, of our body. That's 2 Corinthians 5. Because it's not just, you know, all men suffer. But notice what it says. Even we Christians will suffer. And we're going to be longing to be released from this. And notice that we're eagerly, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Second Corinthians 5. Need to press on for lack of, uh, of time. But when we think about um, what lies ahead, notice what he says in verse 24. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one also hope for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. What does this idea of perseverance mean to us? Is it just, you know, we're going to go through lackadaisical and just live our lives? Isn't that idea of perseverance mean we're pushing through? It's a, it's a focused effort to, to move on, to strive on and on and on to reach that goal. And, you know, we will struggle as Christians. And there might be times or will be times that we're going to need to be very prayerful in, to God, asking for help. But are we going to know exactly what we ought to pray for? And so there going to be time there will be when we pray, who's there to help us? The Spirit is there to help us, because we're not going to know exactly how we need to express everything, but that spirit's going to know our heart and what's before us, and will intercede on our behalf. And I think that's really the focus here. When we talk about verses uh, 26, 27, that the Spirit will intercede on our behalf. But what assurance, and this is question four, what assurance does Paul give the Christian in Rome? This is verse 28 of Romans 8. What assurance do we have as a Christian? So Derek says, all things will work together for good to him who loves the Lord, who loves God. Now, let me just say this. Are we all, are we going to see this working out for good? Are we going to see it? Not necessarily. We may. But maybe how everything works out is simply our glorification at the end. Our exaltation as Christians. We may not see how God chooses to work everything out. That may come years, generations later. Or it may not come at all in this life. It may not come until the next life. But what assurance are we given that it will work out for good? Okay? So, when we think about the suffering that we will endure 
and we think about and prepare ourselves for suffering that might come yet in the future, we can, we can base our actions on the fact that God will, is in control, that everything will work out for good, and that good will be our glorification to be fellow heirs with Christ. Michael, Ty, hold, hold on for just a minute. Do you think some of this is also related to, and I agree, I think we have it easy in this country, but is some of the ease that we have because we don't stick our neck out, necks out like, like others have throughout history? If you look at the passage you, you referenced of First Peter um, 2 and 21, and, and the verse prior to that, verse 20 says, what credit is it, mm-hmm. and I'm going to paraphrase it, if we get beaten for doing bad things? Yeah. Getting beaten for doing good things is, 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 is kind of like what this is, you know, kind of referring yeah. to. And, of course, there's suffering in everyone's life. We all deal with suffering. Yeah. Every, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, and I'm ta- talking about myself here, no one yeah. else in this yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. But am I sticking my neck out enough? Is the reason I don't suffer is because I'm flying under the radar all yeah. the time. And, and that, but yes, I'm not going to say yes to you. <laughs> I'm saying yes as a whole. No, you can say me. Okay. Um, so, and, and because when you look at the sufferings of, say, the, the Christians or the apostles, even, in, the, in Acts, why did they suffer? Because they refused to be silenced for the things they knew. They were out teaching in the, in the synagogue or wherever, and even after being told not to say anything, what did they do? They says, we can't stop speaking the things that we have seen and heard. So I think definitely to your point. And Stephen, Acts 7, I mean, he's preaching to the Jews, but that didn't stop him from saying the things that needed to be said. Okay? Um, so very good point, Ty. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, time is getting away from me. So let me move on to a, a couple of things. Um, let me just, for your reference, verses 29 and 30, really talk about the blessings that come to those that he's predestined and he, he's called. And I went out and sort of, well, there we go. This is really God's plan. And, um, you know, he foreknew, those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he glorified, uh, he justified, he glorified. I would, and you can maybe do this privately, but there's a beautiful parallel to this in Ephesians 1. It may not be, you know, mapped out exactly the same, but it is, because we know that before the foundation of the world, God had a plan, to save man. We've talked about that, right? And that plan was to justify those people who accept Christ. So it's not predestined in the sense that the world thinks about predestined, but he chose those in Christ would be those that that would be justified. And how were those people, how did they come about in Christ? They were called through the gospel. That's Second Thessalonians, the second chapter. They were called through the gospel. 
They were justified and as a result, glorified. So let me, in one minute, two minutes, let me just sum up verses 31 through 32 of what was Paul convinced. At the very end of this chapter, when, you, when he thinks about all the suffering, the glorification, everything, what was Paul absolutely convinced of? Nothing can separate. Nothing can separate us. Now, can we separate ourselves? We talked about that last week, the conditional nature of being in the Spirit. But if we're focused on serving God, being in the Spirit, obedience to the gospel, can anything separate us? That's that assurance of victory. So real briefly, in the two minutes that I have left, because I know Matt is not going to ring the bell until I'm done, I just wanted to maybe, maybe connect some dots over the, that we've studied over the last three months. We looked at the fact that all men sin. We're helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We are enemies and do God's wrath. But God loves man. He loves his creation. He's provided a solution to address and solve the dilemma that man caused. That solution is Jesus, is Christ. And he's that propitiatory sacrifice whose blood sprinkled on the heavenly altar cleanses us from our sins. And so... Notice that he justifies and gives grace to those who are obedient in faith. And that faith comes through the gospel. Think about Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God that creates the faith in man to be saved. That obedience requires man to be a changed person. You can't accept the gospel and be baptized and not be changed. And that changed isn't a one-time event. It is continual. We must continue to strive to hone, to make those in-flight corrections that we, that we make. And that really leads me to the next point. Grace is not a license to sin. That connects back to Brian's lesson that he taught when I was absent that week. There is no condemnation in Christ And notice the condemnation is for those that are in Christ. Christians suffer. We've talked extensively about that today. But one thing we can walk away with is the fact that the Spirit assures us of final victory. And so that concludes the class. I want to thank you all for all of the comments that you have given me over the, the quarter. A lot of words of encouragement. They really have meant a lot to me. David Bunting will pick up chapter 9 next week. There are questions on the AV booth. So if you're in this class, be sure to uh, pick that up. Thank you.